Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Pastor Josh Karstensen is continuing a series on 1 John, where he experienced a lot of pain from people outside the church. Still, the most painful experiences came from people inside the church, being hurt by people who should love us. So, John tells us that if we want to love God, we must also love God's children. John continues to tell us how to love each other. After the message, you're invited to answer some application questions, like, have you ever struggled to love people in the church the way you know you should? You can find these questions on our website next to the worship service video. Now, here's today's message. Peggy, come on up here. Would you guys stand? Peggy's going to read us God's word here. I'm Peggy Sweet, and I've been going to Northwest Hills for about a year now. I, um, right when I moved to Lebanon, I drove by every day, and I thought, got to check them out. And after one time, I knew that this was home, so here I am. So I'm reading from 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Peggy. All right, you can grab a seat. If you were here last week, and even if you weren't, I I said that it feels like we're on repeat. And we've been in this series now, this is week 12, and you kind of get a lot of the same thing again and again and again and again. Yesterday I was driving here, and uh, my wife's cousin was driving with me, and he was asking me, he's like, hey, what are you going to preach about tomorrow? And I said, well, we're going to preach about God's love and how we should love other people. And that seems like a good thing to preach about. I'm like, yeah, I feel like I've been doing that for a few months now. And so we're going to continue in that again, because John was on to something. He knew that we have to hear this again and again and again. Uh, if you're like me, it, my wife can tell me something one time and, you know, sometimes I get it. And sometimes I need to hear twice and oftentimes five or six times. And eventually, after two and a half months, I think we might try to get what John has to say. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. As we get into that, I want to ask you a question, though. Has anyone ever hurt someone that you love, right? Whether it is a friend of yours, whether it is a child of you. How many of you parents have had one of your kids hurt by someone else? Like, that is really, really painful, This last week, I was thinking about, okay, what were some instances in my life where uh, people that I have loved have been hurt by other people? And I thought about an incident that happened a number of years ago, about 20 years ago. In high school, I was a junior, and uh, one of my good friends, he was a junior as well, and his little sister was a freshman. And uh, sometime in the middle of of our year, uh, a a boy, a freshman boy, uh, thought it'd be a great idea to walk by her in the hallway and slap her on the butt and make some rude comment to her. Well, as a junior boy, we felt it was our responsibility to 
make sure that this never happened again. And so uh, I had this memory in my mind of what happened. And I called my friend yesterday and I said, hey, did this really happen? Because like, I think this is what happened. He said, oh, you're a preacher. You can say whatever you want. But um, <laughs> what, what happened is we found this kid in, uh, in the quad outside and we brought him into the cafeteria. And this was back in the day when people ate in cafeterias. I don't know if they do that anymore. And we hushed everyone in the cafeteria. We made everyone sit down and we made everyone listen as we made this kid publicly apologize to my friend's little sister. And then this is where our memories get different. I remember having him kiss her feet, like bow down to her. My friend does not remember that. He said he was going to call his sister. I have not heard back. Regardless, when someone hurts someone you love, like there is a righteous anger that burns inside of you in a lot of ways, more so than when someone assaults you, right? Uh, about a year ago or so, I think I may have shared this story. I was, I was on a bike ride with my middle daughter as well. Uh, we were cruising down. It was a Sunday afternoon. We live near campus. So it was down Campus Way. If you haven't been down Campus Way, it's, it's a road, but there's not really cars on it. And so people are kind of just meandering all over the place. There's bikes and kids and chaos and dogs. And we're cruising and just enjoying a very restful, peaceful Sunday. And my six or seven-year-old at the time, she kind of stops in the middle. And there is this very aggressive Corvallis-style, like all spandexed up biker who was very frustrated that we were stopping in the middle of the road and uh, makes an aggressive comment to my six-year-old while like five yards past us. Now, my immediate reaction is to go like, like, did that, that, that didn't really just happen, right? Like, what moron says that? Like, that's where my mind's going. And then my next thought is like, oh no, he said that. Like, come back here and say it again to me. And then my mind's also going, but that would be far more traumatizing to my daughter if there was some sort of altercation. So we're just gonna, we're gonna let that one go. And I turn around, I'm like, hey, some people will burn in hell forever. It's okay. Um, no, I did not say that. God is gracious and merciful, kind, forgiving. Um, but like... When someone messes with your kid, like you, you mess with my kid or you mess with my wife, and there is a, a deep, deep anger. There is a deep, righteous anger. Right? And the opposite of that is true as well. If you want to love me, you got to love my kids. Right? We're a package deal. You can't just be like, oh, Josh, I like you, and your wife's kind of cool. It typically goes the opposite way. Your wife's awesome. You're kind of cool. Um, your kids, if you don't love my kids, good luck loving me, right? And, and the opposite is also true. You can't just love my kids and not love me, right? And that's you're just a quick word to grandparents in the room. I'm just going to throw this out there to be kind. When you see your kids and your grandkids, hug your kids first then your grandkids. I'm just saying every once in a while, it's like, you know, I'm good to see you, mom and dad. I love you too. I know you love my kids. John's going to tell us today that our father is very similar. He's going to tell us that if you want to love God, you better love his kids. And he's going to tell us if you just love his kids and not him, you're missing it as well. And if you are harsh towards his kids, he's got a righteous anger towards you. And this is a theme that we're going to repeat again and again 
And again, and it picks up with right where we left off last week. We were in chapter four last week, and I'm going to pick it up there. If, you know, th- there's no chapter and break in the original writing. It's just all one flow. And so I'm going to pick it up in chapter four, verse 19, and we are going to again see John's heart for a father who loves him, who commands us to love each other. If you've got a Bible, let's go 19 of chapter four. John says this, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I just want to sit on that for just a second. If you do not love the people that you see, how can you love the God that you cannot see? And this commandment, this is 21, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also, must also love his brother, right? We we get this heart from John that we looked at last week and, and John is writing as this like deep loving grandfather to a generation or two behind him. And he's saying, guys, like church, you better love one another, We talked about some of the the pain and the hardship and and the deep sorrow that he was writing from. And and we talked about the fact that he had experienced all kinds of hurt and pain from people outside the church, right? From people who were oppressing him, from people who were not being kind. And we kind of looked at his life and what that was like. And we saw that first it started with the Jews. You know, the Jews ultimately um, arrested John. They persecuted him. They beat him. They forced him like, hey, stop talking about this Jesus. And he keeps living it out. Eventually, this persecution goes from the Jews only to the overarching government. And he has like state-sanctioned persecution against him from Rome. Right? We saw this play out in a couple of different ways. We saw it play out in his hometown where he's in Jerusalem and, and he's there and the city is under attack. It's under siege for five months and eventually falls to the ground. Not one stone left on another. We see as he flees a thousand miles away, as he knows what it's like to be some sort of refugee to a foreign place, to a different people, with a different family, with a different friend group. And he's starting something fresh and he's starting something new and he's in Ephesus and he's rebuilding and restarting there. We saw that even once he gets there, what persecution was like under different emperors. I mean, he was single-handedly targeted um, for people trying to kill him, the emperor himself, right? He's forced to drink poison. He's forced into boiling oil in order to try to kill him. That doesn't kill him. He's banished to an island of solitary confinement. I mean, this guy has a laundry list of hurt and pain from people on the outside, Right? Ultimately, we talked about just the pain also of continuously hearing word after word of people that you love being killed for this Jesus that you've given your life for. He was the last living apostle. And then we talked about last week that even though he was in the midst of all that pain, there is a pain far greater than pain from those outside. And that is the pain that he was experiencing of those inside. We talked about the deepest human possible pain that we can feel is when we are hurt by those who should love us, when we are hurt by people who should care for us, when people who should be for us are against us, that opens up wounds that are incredibly deep. And John is going to say with deep compassion, he's going to say, if you think you know God, if you say you know God, you better love one another. 
He's talking to a church. He's talking to a group of churches. He's talking to a group of people who have a spoken agreement and commitment that we are together. We belong to one another. And this place is being tore apart. And he says, guys, you got to restart. You got to refresh because you are tearing each other apart. I said this last week. I'll say it again. For 2,000 years, people have been reading these words with tears from John And yet the words still resonate today as we can look around at churches all over, as we can look around in our own lives and say, man, why is this still happening? Right? Why are we still experiencing deep pain from those we love? Why is this commonplace? I've I've spoken to a number of people over the years who are not Christians, and I try to be pretty open about my faith and pretty, pretty, I don't know, genuinely care for people where they are. And You know, multiple times we've had conversations where people will say, man, I just cannot be a Christian because there's so many hypocrites. And my mind typically goes to, and you have no idea how bad it really is. Thank God for grace because we all need it, but you have no idea how painful and how hurtful it is when those on the inside tear you apart. You think about the last couple weeks here, and I don't know how many of you guys pay attention to stuff like this. It's kind of in the broader news But some of you possibly have seen kind of the report that came out from the SBC two weeks ago this last Sunday, the Southern Baptist Convention. And no, we're not Southern Baptists, but we might as well be. Our polity is the same. Our theology is virtually identical. But you look at this report that came out. Maybe this is news to some of you. There was a 300-page kind of document that came out um, that that was an investigative report on um, abuse of people within the church since, I think, about 1998. There was 700, I think 700 victims in 400 different churches. And really, like, that is a heinous, heinous evil within itself. But what the report was primarily talking about was all the cover-up that churches were doing uh, to try to keep this under wraps. And you hear that, and you read that, and you just go, what in the world are people thinking? Like, how does this happen? How does this happen within a church? How does this happen to people who say, I love God, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to abuse people, and then people above me are going to do whatever they can to cover this up so we don't look very bad? How does that happen? And whether it's an egregious of an abuse as that, or whether it's as mundane as an abuse of ignoring the people that we should love, Right, Coming home from work and just being on a phone and not giving my kids, not giving my wife, not giving my roommates the attention that they deserve. How does this continue to happen year after year after year out there and in here and in here? John's going to give us a little bit of a kind of behind the scenes reality of how this happens. But then he's going to give us a kind of a solution of like, how can we combat against this? How can we try to orient our lives in such a way that every week we need reminding that we are sons of God, and if we are sons of God, we are called to live a certain way? In order to do this, we're going to look at kind of two questions and two statements. You're going to hear a lot of the same things, but again, I think it's so important because I think we have to hear it again and again to get something from our head to our heart because, again, if you're like me, it takes me sometimes five or six times to really grasp what's being said. The first question we're going to look at, like I said, we're going to look at four, is how can you be sure you know God? 
You know, John makes a, a statement here in chapter, in verse one of chapter five uh, about the correlation of knowing God. And so I want to start here. How can we make sure that we know God? And this was at some of the core of the arguments that was going on within the church and, and really the core of a lot of the pain of, of insults that people are having with one another. How do you make sure that you know who God is? Right, and, and he's talking to a group of people who have an agreement that God exists. This is a theistic community. This is a, a people who have a worldview that God exists, but they're just fighting about who he is. Listen to what he says in verse one. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He says, if you want to be born of God, another way of saying that is, if you want to know who the true God is, if you want to be saved, you got to do one thing. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, there's two parts of that that are important, right? The first part is belief, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But then there's the second part that Jesus is the Christ. Now, he was talking to a group of people who have a context and who have a background of understanding what the Christ meant when he said, believe that Jesus is the Christ. You know, a lot of these were Jewish converts. These were people who were Jews who became Christians or they were Gentiles who became uh, Christians and who kind of got a lot of background from the Jews. But you think about the history of what the Jews were waiting for in terms of this, this word, the Christ. There is a very clear understanding amongst this people group of what they were waiting for. For a few thousand years, they were waiting for someone, really kind of in vague terms since early Genesis chapter 3, after the fall with Adam and Eve, when God says, I will redeem, I will restore, um, I will crush the serpent. So they're waiting for God to do that. But then very, very specifically, this nation's been waiting for about a thousand years since King David, when God made a promise to David and he said, David, through you, through your family line, I'm going to raise someone up who will restore, who will redeem, and who will strengthen you as a people and as a nation, right? And so you, you think about the history of, of this nation after David and things fall apart pretty quickly after David, Right after David, it's his son Solomon, and Solomon's a great king, but after that, it's just civil war. After civil war, they're taken over by all kinds of different people. They're taken over by Assyria. They're taken over by Babylon. They're taken over by Persia. They're taken over by the Greeks. They're taken over by the Romans. And so you have a thousand-year history where this people group is waiting for this promised person who God said will come through the line of David, and they're waiting for someone to restore this nation ultimately to a place of prominence, place of prosperity, a place where they can have their nation once again and have peace. Well, Jesus comes on the scene and ultimately he is killed and he doesn't bring the type of peace that they're waiting for. And so by and large, the Jewish nation rejects Jesus, right? To this day, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. They don't believe that Jesus is this Messiah that they were waiting for. But what John's going to tell us and has been telling us is that, oh, no, 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 Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, but he didn't come to bring hope the way that you thought. You thought he would come and he would end all evil. You thought he would come and end all suffering. You thought he would come and, and whatever your dreams of what the good life would be, that would happen. That's not what happened. Jesus came, forgave sin. Jesus came, restores life. And Jesus comes and lives through us. And now we are called to live out the mission and vision of God as followers of his. But you have to believe that Jesus is God. If you want to know the real God, you have to believe. And that belief part's really important. And it's important for a few reasons. To believe that we are saved only through belief means that we're all on the same playing field. 
that there's no one in this room who's like, well, God was really happy with me. God was pleased with my behavior. He's pleased with my activity. He's pleased with my lineage. Therefore, he accepted me. God is the ultimate form of equity. Everyone is welcome. Ultimately, belief and belief alone are what saves. How can you be sure you know God? Today, the question isn't primarily who is the correct God, but a question a lot of people wrestle with is, does God exist? You know, in the last week, I've talked to two different people. I love this. I love this about our church. I've talked to two different people who have told me like, hey, um, I go to church. I don't believe in God. I'm trying to wrestle through it. I love what you guys have here as far as community. Um, You know, there's some cool kids program stuff. I'm trying to figure this out. And I think, first of all, like, I commend anyone in that spot. I commend anyone who's here like, trying to figure out, does God exist? And man, there's a lot of different arguments I could give you for why I believe and why it makes sense to believe in the God of the Bible. But I'll kind of rebuild and, and just briefly talk about what we said a few, in week two of why a rational belief in God, or why a belief in God is rational. You think about the world that we live in right now, and we think about moral values, you know, this is an argument I keep coming back to because I think it's so true. You think about moral values and you think about things that are right and things that are wrong. And you, you can look at like blatantly obvious examples of evil, right? Uh, one happened just a few weeks ago in that shooting in Texas, right? We can look at that and universally everyone will say that was morally wrong. That was an ought not. You ought not to do that. But hypothetically, We could think of someone who might say, well, I don't necessarily believe that that action was wrong. If someone were to have that position and say, I don't believe that action was wrong, who am I then to say that their belief is wrong? The only thing that I have, if God doesn't exist, is to say, well, I have a majority consensus. Well, that becomes incredibly slippery when we argue all the time about whatever the majority consensus of the day might be. Ultimately, we want a world where God exists who gives moral values that we can look at. We can say there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. We talked about this through a book that I'm reading. I'm going to read a quote that I read a number of weeks ago about this world that we want and sacred order and a God who exists who prescribes these moral values. In this book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I'm just going to read a couple of sentences here. Uh, The writer says, no culture has ever persevered itself where it is not a registration of sacred order. In other words, if you don't have a belief from a God who says, this is right, this is wrong, this is how you should behave, this is how you shouldn't behave, cultures have not lasted. Their cultures have not survived. The third culture notion of a culture that persists independent of all sacred orders is unprecedented in human history. The truth is, deep down, we all have a desire to be able to, with confidence, say, that action is wrong, and you ought not to do that. But the only way that you can have that confidence is if you have a foundation that is not on you or the majority of people who are hanging out with you. As we continue, he makes the statement about our behavior, right? So how do you know God? You believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then he goes on to talk about our behavior, which I mentioned at the beginning. He says, if you love God you will love his children. We see this in verse one, the second part of verse one. He says, and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. And what is this love? And as I was was preparing for this series, uh, as we were thinking through as a team, man, what does our church need in this season of life right now? 
First John just kept coming again and again and again, this idea that what we need more than anything is we as a church need to remind ourselves of God's call for us to love one another. Because think about where we've been the last couple years. Right? Think about where we've been, not only as a church, but where we've been as a city, where we've been in our families, right? where we've been in our communities, where we've been as a nation. Right? The division, the anger. I, I was sitting... Um, with a family member yesterday, we, were, we did an errand and we came back and we we're sitting in my car and we we're just sitting in my driveway for 30 minutes or so talking about just the hardship of life in our extended family of the different tensions that have happened in the last two years and how so many of our families just going whoosh, complete opposite direction. You talk about the tensions of, well, I think my political views are, are best, and I think my political views are best, and, and I think my understanding of science is right, and I think my understanding of science is right, and, and I think this about how we ought to behave in public, and now the church is going to have one service this summer? Good luck with that. And I think that this is what safety is, and I think this is how you should behave, and you should wear this, and you shouldn't wear this, and this is what freedom is, and on and on and on and on that goes, and it's tearing people apart. And it's not over. Like, it really isn't over. And so as I've been kind of praying into God, what do we need to hear? Like, First John is just like, you guys have to love one another. You have to. You will not last if you do not love one another. And so what is this love? Right, John, John says it, you got to love one another. What is this love? I do, I do weddings all the time. I love weddings. I think they're a ton of fun. I, I'm currently doing three different sets of, of, marriage, of pre-marriage counseling right now. And, and we talk about like when you are getting married, you, you know, everyone wants to talk about this cultural idea of love. And there is like an emo, especially when you're young and fresh, like there's this emotional, emotive, like heart struck, starry eyed, like call you on the phone. I don't know, TikTok each other, whatever they do these days. Like this deep feeling of love, but ultimately like love is not primarily just a feeling. It's a covenant. Love is a promise. Like love from God is not just, oh, I feel this way about you. Therefore I will behave this way towards you. Love from God is I've made a promise to you. Therefore my behavior, whether the feelings are there or not, will be in such a way that someday, hopefully the feelings will be there. Right? And so John's going to say, if you want to love one another, you got to be committed to one another. And so think about our lives and think about where you're at right now. What does commitment look like? Right? You think about maybe it's with a friend or a family member, right? Like, again, conversation in my car last night, family members doing this. Right? What does that look like to say, no, I'm committed to you. And what does it look like to be the chaser of the person who's running away, right? Like, how do I love you well when you're running over here? And where, are, are, there, are there lines that I just need to be careful with? Maybe, maybe there's some abuse or neglect that's going on here. How do I be wise and approach and still have a covenant? What does that look like? Right? What does that look like within the church? Because the Lord knows we got people on all sides of different issues right now. If we were to have open conversations, man, some people would be getting all excited up in here. Right? How do I make a commitment that says, man, I'm committed to this group of people? And obviously you can't commit to everyone here. So what does it look like to be committed to a smaller group of people? To say like, hey, we may uh, disagree, but let's agree to disagree and let me care for you regardless. Love is a commitment. We continue on and we ask the question, how do I know if I'm loving my children? Right? How do I lo- know if I'm loving his children? Right? Uh, it's one thing to say that uh, I'm going to make this commitment 
It's, it's another thing to say, like, hopefully the feelings will be there eventually. Well, what does this love look like? John, he's brilliant. He spells this out very clearly for us in verse 2. He says this. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Okay, how do I know? Well, he tells us. When we love God and obey his commandments. Well, that sounds like a hefty list. Right? Obey his commandments. Well, uh, we could go here and I could probably call on every person. We could come up with a different commandment of how God's called us to live. Right? Okay. So I'm supposed to be generous. I'm supposed to be kind. Supposed to be caring. Supposed to be thoughtful. You know, all the different one another's, all the biblical one another's that we are called to be for one another. So, well, that seems like a little bit comprehensive. Like, okay, how can we do that well? And is there a way to summarize all that? And Paul does summarize it. He summarizes it in Galatians 5. He summarizes all the law. In 5.14, we read this. It says, the whole law, in other words, all the ways that we are called to love one another, is summarized in one word, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Again, that sounds sweet. Oh, yeah, I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. Like, last time I checked, I'm trying to take decent care of myself. Like, I'm, I'm pretty self-oriented in a lot of ways. I often make decisions that, that I feel like are best for myself. So how do I make sure I love other people with that same type of love? Because that's not anything new, right? We've, we've heard this for a few thousand years now. How is it that even though we know what we ought to do, how is it that we often do what verse 15 says? Look at the next verse. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And no, that is not talking about cannibalism. This is a metaphor. He's saying, hey, if you are harsh, if you are demanding, if you are rude, if you are arrogant, if you are prideful, it will tear your church apart. It will tear your friend group apart. It will tear your family apart. How do we make sure that we don't do that? Because again, we all know this. How do we get there? He says this. This is our fourth statement. He says, in this world, it's hard to love his children, but we have overcome this world. He's going to tell us, man, it feels like things seem impossible to get any better. Uh, it feels like we look around and we just see constant abuse. We look in the mirror and I feel like maybe I'm not making the progress I'd like to make. He reminds us, here's how to make the progress that we all long for. And we see this in, starting in verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Which is really interesting because sometimes it feels that they're burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He's trying to say here, in this world, in the world that we live in, in the broken, hurting, sinful, kind of first layer world, it is really hard to love people in a way that doesn't feel burdensome, right? It's hard in the natural old self to serve people takes a lot of effort and a lot of effort sometimes feels like it's burdensome. It feels like it takes a lot of hardship, but he's going to say there's a way to overcome this world. The way that we overcome this world is what, the way that he started verse 1 is, and that's with our faith. With our faith, we can do one thing. We can overcome this world. And what does he mean by that? 
This last week, I was reading uh, kind of the story of, of David and Jonathan, and I was reading the idea of, man, you want to look at someone who has overcome the natural desires of this world. This is a friendship, I think, perhaps unlike any other friendship in all of Scripture. Like maybe after church, if you can think of a different one, let me know, but I think it's brilliant. You, you think about David and Jonathan, and, and Jonathan was the son of the first king, Saul. So Saul is the first king over the nation of Israel, military commander, great guy at first, but pretty quickly falls apart. And Jonathan is his son. He's heir to the throne. He's a military commander. He's taking charge of all kinds of armies, and he will be the next king in line. Now then who comes on the scene? All right, this ruddy-headed, redhead, handsome guy named David, shepherd boy, And he takes on Goliath and he kills Goliath and defeats the army of the Philistines and all of a sudden has won the heart of the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden you have this new person who everyone's saying, we want you to be king. And what does Jonathan do? You would think like the the natural desire of Jonathan would be like, no way, get this guy out of here. I'm going to be the next king. But listen to 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. This is Jonathan towards David. It says, he loved him as his own soul. In verse 4 of chapter 18, listen to this. It says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. In this world, you don't do that. Right? In this world, you don't give up the first chair to take second chair. Right? In this world, you don't give up the promotion for someone else who has nothing to do with everything that you've given your life towards unless you know that you are loved by God who sees you exactly as you are and that is an, an absolutely worthy son of the king. Because who Jonathan is, is he has the absolute utter confidence that I am loved by God and through my faith, knowing who I am, I'm okay if someone else takes first chair. I'm okay if someone else succeeds. I'm okay That's not a burden anymore. I don't have to carry that weight because I'm loved just as I am. And there is no ladder for me to climb because I'm already at the top. Listen to what Jonathan says. David's been fleeing from Saul for years. Um, Saul's been trying to kill him and and David's uh, in, in a cave at this point. And Jonathan goes out and he finds him. This is 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. And strengthened his hand. In other words, he's like, hey, my friend, I see you here. You have been running for years. I am your friend. I am with you. I care for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm in the trenches with you. And listen to this. He says, and he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Here's just more encouragement. And listen to this line. He says, you shall be king over Israel. And this next line is so sweet. And I shall be next to you. I'll be right next to you. Like, you can be the guy, I'll be the guy behind the guy because I'm loved by the big guy. Like, I have my faith in order and my faith tells me that I am loved exactly as I am. And when we are loved, like we know God loves us, his commands are not burdensome. I think about my life and I think about our lives and I think about the effort that it takes to love people well. And it takes effort. Right? It takes effort at home to show your spouse love. It takes effort in your friend groups to say, hey, you matter to me. How are you doing? That takes effort. In fact, the more effort that it takes, the more it shows you love them. Right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Right? Amongst a church, like to show a church family that you love them 
takes effort. First of all, it takes the effort to show up, right? And that's effort. And it takes effort to serve. It takes effort for the 130 slots that are going to be filled after this first hour in Sunday school. And that takes some sort of effort, but it's not burdensome when you go, I'm loved by God. And I've got my spot and I know who I am and I am confident in that. And even if you hurt me, I'm going to be okay because I am loved. We're going to land this plane with one final question. And I think we have to ask this question. None of this is new. None of these commandments, none of these thoughts are new. This idea that I ought to love people, that if I say I love God, that I will live a certain way towards other people. Why is it that we don't get insanely discouraged when we continuously don't do what we believe that we ought to do? We go back to the original thing that he says in verse 1 and verse 5. It's our faith. Because ultimately, what does our faith tell us? Our faith tells us that, you know what, Josh? Like, you're going to fail in loving how you ought to. And your wife's going to fail in loving how she ought to. And your community group member and your person you're serving with in Sunday school and the person that you're at work with and your friend group and whoever else you're involved with is going to fail at some level because guess what? Everyone fails. But our faith says there's one who didn't. And that one who didn't is Jesus, which puts us again all on the same playing field because what do we get to do? We get to come in every week and say, God, I have not loved how I ought to this week. But this next week, I'm going to do my best to bring your kingdom to earth because that's what you've called me to do. And so as we wrap it up, I'm going to just ask us a couple questions in my prayer, but I'm going to ask that you'd pray with me. Father God, as we look at our own lives, as I look in the mirror at myself, as I look at my family, as I look at my friends, as I look at people I'm trying to love, God, I, I first need to, through faith, know that I am infinitely loved by you right where I am not by a cleaned up version of myself where maybe someday I'll be lovable, but right now in my selfishness, in whatever it is that I haven't been doing that I ought to do, God, you love me. And so I can walk out of here whole. I can walk out of here complete. I can walk out of here knowing that there is not a ladder that I need to climb, that I'm at the top because I'm your son. And Lord, that when I am able to fully grasp that, every week I get a new opportunity and a fresh start to say, hey, how can I love people because I'm loved by you, God? Lord, let us be a church who deeply loves one another. But I, I really believe that perhaps our greatest apologetic right now will not be an argument even about morality, even about intrinsic moral evils, but it might just be that our greatest apologetic is our love for each other. And Lord, while we want this to be a place where we, can have, uh, where we can have arguments, where we can have conversation. God, let this be a place that's just exploding with care for one another. Ultimately, that's built on commitment, a commitment that says my affections will come when my effort is here and my effort is burdenless when I know that I'm a son. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.